This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. She was, and still is, the most iconic sex symbol in American history. She was romantically involved with some of the most famous men of the 20th century. And her death is still shrouded in conspiracy theories and mystery. The Hollywood director Joshua Logan described her as one of the most unappreciated people in the world. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Famous Fates, a ParCast original exclusive to Spotify. Each week, we'll release five fresh episodes centered around a common theme, such as Hollywood icons, influential women, or music legends. In each episode, we'll take a close look at the remarkable life of a different person. With the help of voice actors, we'll dramatize their incredible lives, reimagining their greatest and weakest moments. Then we'll examine their controversial deaths. Some deaths came too soon, some remained shrouded in mystery, and some changed the world forever. Today we're covering Marilyn Monroe. Well, today, she's a pop culture icon. In her time, she was a star of the silver screen. But her pain behind the scenes led to one of history's most controversial deaths. You can find episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Famous Fates for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find it on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, back to the life of Marilyn Monroe. June 1st, 1926. Los Angeles County Hospital. Marilyn is born Norma Jean Mortensen, actually. The name given to her by the second husband of her mother, Gladys Baker. But the truth is, her mom's second husband was not her father. Norma Jean, or Marilyn, never knew who her father was. No one ever did. Although years later, when she was famous, she got people going by joking that screen legend Clark Gable was her biological father. 
And that has its own strange connection to Marilyn's later life and her fame, but we'll be getting to that. In any case, although Norma Jean's mom took her second husband Mortensen's name, he was not the biological father. And eventually, history just put Gladys' first married name onto her third child, Norma Jean. That's why before she became a star, Marilyn is more commonly remembered as being Norma Jean Baker. Wow. Norma Jean has just been born, and already it's hard to keep track of who was responsible for her. You're so right. This is the kind of uncertainty and fear that, by all reports, haunted her for her entire life. Yes. Right after she was born, her mother's mental illness proved too much for her, and Gladys Baker immediately had to see about getting Norma Jean into a foster home. But what is really powerful is that even though her mother was mentally ill and unfit to raise a daughter, when Norma Jean changed her name to Marilyn, she chose as her last name her mother's maiden name, Monroe. That speaks volumes about the love Marilyn must have had for her mother, even though for years, Marilyn would often claim in interviews that her mother was dead. Well, if you think about it, Gladys knew that as a parent with a mental instability, she needed to place her newborn daughter into foster care. She was, in her own way, looking out for Norma Jean. Norma Jean's first set of foster parents were Albert and Ida Bolander, an evangelical Christian couple in the California town of Hawthorne. By all accounts, they adored Norma, and even allowed Gladys to live with them and commute to work in Los Angeles. In fact, many years later, after their young charge became famous, Ida Bolander composed a letter to Marilyn's half-sister, which she said, It has almost broken my heart to read the stories that have been written about her early childhood, when I know personally they are so untrue. I find that really touching. It sounds like Norma Jean's first set of foster parents really wanted the world to know that they did right by her. But let's go back a second. You said Ida Bolander wrote a note to Marilyn's half-sister? Marilyn had a half-sister? Yes, and a half-brother too, though he died young, before Marilyn ever met him. Did I miss something? Well, yes, but so did Marilyn. She never knew she had half-siblings until she was an adolescent, and never met her half-sister, Bernice, until she was an adult. Oh, so these must have been kids that Norma Jean's, or Marilyn's, mother had with Mr. Baker. That's right. Gladys married the 24-year-old guy when she was only 15, and when they divorced, he took the kids and left. Gladys must have stayed pretty quiet about it. So weird, too, because years later, Marilyn would find herself in a similar situation with a man. Minus the kids. Right. We'll get to that. But, for now, everything is going along pretty okay for a while, with Gladys, though struggling with her issues, living with the Bolanders and helping to raise little Norma Jean. But when Gladys's work as a negative cutter for the movie industry took up more of her time, she moved away and only visited on weekends. The Bolanders wanted to adopt Norma Jean, but by the summer of 1933, Gladys said she felt like she had gotten her mental illness under control, and so her daughter moved with her to a small house in Hollywood. It was during this time, when Norma Jean was just seven, that things began to spin out of control. Gladys was not as on the mend as she had hoped she could be, and she soon had a nervous breakdown and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Eventually, poor Gladys spent the rest of her life in institutions and hardly ever had any contact with the daughter who would become world famous. But Norma Jean Baker was not world famous as Marilyn Monroe yet. In fact, she was about to enter the most damaging time of her life, a time that may have been the main contributor to the depression she struggled with for her entire career. Norma Jean was taken in by George and Maud Atkinson, the husband and wife boarders that lived with her and her mother. For the year and a half she lived with them, she was reportedly molested by George Atkinson. It should be noted that Marilyn Monroe's many biographers differ as to the authenticity of these claims, 
but there is no doubt that Marilyn was a troubled soul, a condition that came to its boiling point on the night that she died. Which we will soon explore. Meantime, little Norma Jean was bounced around through several different foster home situations. Grace Goddard, a longtime friend of Gladys, came in to oversee Norma Jean's transfer to the Los Angeles Orphans Home in Hollywood in 1935. Although most accounts do not have Norma Jean as being abused in the orphanage, it was still a place of great pain for her. She felt unwanted and cast aside in every area of her still so young life. She was already a shy girl, but now, believe it or not, the woman who had become Marilyn Monroe was becoming painfully shy and withdrawn, even developing a stutter. For a time, Norma Jean was taken out of the orphanage to live with her mother's friend Grace Goddard, but that came to a terrible end when Grace's husband also reportedly molested Norma Jean. But there was always the movies. In a 1962 interview with Life magazine, Marilyn said, When I was five, I think, that's when I started wanting to be an actress. I loved to play. I didn't like the world around me because it was kind of grim. But I loved to play house. It was like you could make your own boundaries. When I heard that this was acting, I said that's what I want to be. Some of my foster families used to send me to the movies to get me out of the house, and there I'd sit all day and way into the night, up in front, there with the screen so big, a little kid all alone, and I loved it. For a brief time, Norma Jean's life returned to a kind of normalcy when Grace Goddard's kindly aunt, Anna Atchison Lower, agreed to let Norma Jean live with her. For two years, Norma Jean attended Emerson Junior High School in Los Angeles and even wrote for the school newspaper. I wish some of those articles were still around. Can you imagine? Well, there was a lot going on inside that young mind. Soon after, though, Aunt Anna's health began to fail, and Norma Jean was pushed back into the lives of her official legal guardians, Grace Goddard and her possibly abusive husband. Then, to make matters worse, said husband gets reassigned in his work, and the Goddards are headed to West Virginia. Except California law at the time would not let them take Norma Jean with them, so it's beginning to look like it'll be back to the orphanage for her. Norma Jean Baker is really feeling squeezed now, so she takes an action that put her in a remarkably similar situation to that of her mother some years back. At 16, to make sure she does not have to move to West Virginia with her foster parents, she drops out of Van Nuys High School and marries a neighbor, the 21-year-old factory worker Jim Doherty. Norma Jean immediately takes on the uncomfortable role of teenage housewife and mother. It's the time of World War II by now. And in 1944, Jim ships out to the Pacific. He would remain there for two years. While he's gone, Norma Jean moves in with Jim's parents and takes a job at the Radio Plane Munitions Factory. She wanted to help the war effort, and perhaps more importantly, she wanted to start earning her own living. The marriage didn't make me sad, but it didn't make me happy either. My husband and I hardly spoke to each other. This wasn't because we were angry. We had nothing to say. I was dying of boredom. For his part, years later as an old man, Jim Doherty reflected on his brief marriage to the world's greatest screen siren. I never knew Marilyn Monroe. I don't claim to have any insights to her to this day. I knew and loved Norma Jean. Mind you, Doherty was not happy when Norma Jean wanted a divorce and moved out of his parents' house. He was against her having a modeling career. Wait, a modeling career? Yes. 
Norma Jean's life was about to take a significant turn. And now, listeners, take note, before you think working in a munitions factory would be the last place in the world where one's future could suddenly turn around, remember, that's how it happened for Norma Jean. Pretty much everything that came after was all part of how Marilyn Monroe became Marilyn Monroe. And it was, indeed, because she worked in a munitions factory during World War II. A certain somebody named Ronald Reagan was the commanding officer of the U.S. Army and Air Force's first motion picture unit. Reagan sent photographer David Conover out to the munitions factory to take pictures of female workers to boost wartime morale. Conover took several now-famous photographs of Norma Jean. And even though they weren't used by the motion picture unit, the experience lit a fire under Norma Jean's ambitions, and she left her marriage to pursue a modeling career, doing more advertisement and pinup work for David Conover and his circle of photographer friends. She signed a contract with the Blue Book Modeling Agency in 1945 and dyed her hair blonde to get more work. According to the agency's owner, she was one of the most serious and hard-working models they employed. By a year later, she had appeared on 33 magazine covers, and it was time to see if the movies would come calling. They did, but more with a whimper than a bang at first. At 20th Century Fox, producer Ben Lyon persuaded a lukewarm Daryl Zanuck to sign a new actress, now named for now and forever, Marilyn Monroe. The early signs of Marilyn's dedication to her craft and to her own success can be found right from the start. She barely got any acting roles, only tiny parts in minor productions, but through it all she hung around film sets to see how they did things, and she constantly took acting classes to hone her craft. The studio also paid for her to study in their own acting lab, which was patterned after the techniques of the group theater. Marilyn Monroe was always dedicated to the enrichment of her acting, despite becoming known as the archetypal dumb blonde. This seriousness of approach to her profession is part of what is forgotten by a history that is sometimes eager to keep her in the dumb blonde role. I think that's why it's important to briefly say a little about the group theater, which had such an influence on Marilyn's life. Yes, it was a New York collective, founded by Lee Strasberg, among others, dedicated to a grounded and naturalistic style of acting and self-expression. I knew how third-rate I was. I could actually feel my lack of talent, as if it were cheap clothes I was wearing inside. But, my God, how I wanted to learn, to change, to improve. I finally made up my mind I wanted to be an actress, and I was not going to let my lack of confidence ruin my chances. Working in the actor's lab was my first taste of what real acting in a real drama could be, and I was hooked. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. It was, perhaps, this belief in the process of acting that kept Marilyn going, even when her contract at Fox was not renewed. She was also an excellent self-promoter, getting to know gossip columnists and making sure to flirt with the most influential people in Tinseltown. When she had an affair with another film executive, Joseph Schenk, Schenk persuaded his friend Harry Cohn at Columbia Studios to sign Marilyn. And while this next milestone still did not yield any significant acting role, it did cement Marilyn's image as we now know it. 
At Columbia, they shifted her from the girl-next-door parts Fox was casting her in to a kind of bombshell along the lines of Rita Hayworth. Her hairline was raised through electrolysis, her hair was bleached to a lighter platinum blonde, and the dialogue coach she was having an affair with paid to have her slight overbite corrected. Still no big break for Marilyn. Then she became a protege of a big shot at the William Morris agency, Johnny Hyde. The two began an affair, but Marilyn refused his marriage proposals. Hyde also paid for a silicone prosthesis to be placed in Marilyn's jaw, completing her look. It is kind of sad to hear how made over Marilyn was, but at that point, I suspect she had her eyes on the prize of fame, and nothing was going to stop her. But it was pretty clear she couldn't have done it without Johnny Hyde. Here's what one Hollywood insider said about their collaboration at the time. Only one man was responsible for making her a star. That man was Johnny Hyde. He had faith in her when she was a starlet, and a damned unimportant starlet. When you had Johnny in your corner, you had a pipeline to the guys that really count in Hollywood. And it was in 1950 that all that compromise and hard work began to pay off for Marilyn. I'm sorry, Uncle Lot. I tried. You did pretty well, considering... In The Asphalt Jungle, a heist film from noted director John Huston, Marilyn had only a few minutes of screen time, but she got noticed. And then, in All About Eve, Marilyn held her own among stars like Betty Davis and George Sanders. I don't want to make trouble. All I want is a drink. Leave it to me. I'll get you one. Thank you, Mr. Fabian. Well done. And while these breakout roles did put Marilyn in the blonde bombshell mold that she spent most of her career in, they did allow her to find footing in the career she had been dreaming of since play-acting at five years old. I'm trying to find myself as a person. Sometimes that's not easy to do. Millions of people live their entire lives without finding themselves. But it is something I must do. The best way for me to find myself as a person is to prove to myself that I am an actress. And make no mistake... Marilyn had arrived. In 1951, Collier's Magazine published the world's first full-length profile of Marilyn. She was a presenter at the 23rd Academy Awards. The Los Angeles Daily News called her one of the brightest up-and-coming actresses on the scene. Fan mail poured in. During the Korean War, the Army newspaper Stars and Stripes declared her Miss Cheesecake of 1951. She was not idle in the romance department either. Her most high-profile romance during this period was with the director Ilya Kazan, who would go on to make On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. She also dated Rebel Without a Cause director Nicholas Ray, along with actors Peter Lawford and Yul Brenner. But all of this success was buffered by a terrible loss. Just after he signed a brand new contract for Marilyn with 20th Century Fox, the man who allowed it all to happen, Johnny Hyde, died suddenly of a heart attack. Marilyn was devastated. She wrote in her diary, My greatest friend was buried. I was without his importance to fight for me, without his love to guide me. I cried for night after night. Sometimes I felt wrong in not marrying him and giving him what he wanted. But I also knew it would be wrong to marry a man you didn't really love. I never stopped regretting the loss of Johnny Hyde. But, as we know, life closes one door and opens another. And for Marilyn, that new door was the acting teacher, Michael Chekhov. Acting became important. It became an art that belonged to the actor, not to the director or producer, or the man whose money had bought the studio. It was an art that transformed you into somebody else, that increased your life and mind. I had always loved acting and tried hard to learn it. 
But with Michael Chekhov, acting became more than a profession to me. It became a sort of religion. Chekhov taught actors to access their subconscious through various external and movement techniques. Marilyn continued to improve her acting chops and sought out more challenging roles. Such as a fish cannery worker in Clash by Night in 1952. About which the Hollywood Reporter said she deserves starring status with her excellent interpretation. She actually prepared by working for a time in a real fish cannery in Monterey, California. Then there was Don't Bother to Knock, a role that Daryl Zanuck specifically gave her to see if she could pull off something much more dramatic. But the role of a psychologically disturbed babysitter was not as well received by the critics, causing a setback in Marilyn's deeper ambitions. None of this stopped her from making headlines, first by telling a gossip columnist that she was not fond of wearing underwear. Then came a scandal that anyone else might not have recovered from in 1950s America. Dateline Hollywood. Movie vixen Marilyn Monroe embroiled in nude pictures kerfuffle that could destroy her career. It was discovered that during her early modeling days, Marilyn had posed naked for a pinup calendar, and the news media pounced on it. But in a stunning reversal that speaks volumes about how Marilyn's vulnerable side was so embraced by her fans, the movie studio spun the story to have Marilyn talk openly about how the nude shots were done during a difficult time in her life, when she was in dire financial straits. It worked. Not only was the outpouring of public sympathy enormous, but the publicity increased audience interest in seeing Marilyn's movies. As if all of that wasn't enough, a very big change in her private life was the next thing to grab headlines. That was when Marilyn began a relationship with a man she had been introduced to through mutual friends, baseball legend Joe DiMaggio. Monroe and DiMaggio were married in January of 1954. And by October of that same year, they had divorced. The two factors were their fame and DiMaggio's jealousy. Let's start with the fame. Joe DiMaggio, arguably the most famous sports figure of his day, had retired from baseball when he met Marilyn. He already had his years of fame, just as Marilyn was beginning to get the first taste of hers. In a way, DiMaggio was over it, just as Marilyn was being seduced by it. There's a great story about how right in the middle of their honeymoon, Marilyn accepted an invitation to entertain the troops overseas in Korea. She was so bowled over by the reception that she called her husband on a fame-induced high. Oh, Joe! Joe, it's wonderful. The troops love me. You have never heard such cheering. Yes. Yes, darling, I have. And that was really it. Joe had been down that road, and he was not on the same path as his wife. But we should make sure and say that he did not resent Marilyn her fame. He knew what it was because he had it himself, and he was okay with her ambitions. What he was not okay with was the image that her fame required of her. Take me, take me in your arms. She sang of love just as she lived for love, like a Lorelei flaunting her charms as she lured men on and on to their eternal destruction. And her own husband was no exception. That's a clip from the trailer for Niagara, a scandalous love story starring Marilyn that had church groups up in arms. We're talking scenes in which Marilyn was wearing only a sheet or a towel, absolutely shocking to audiences at that time. And a 30-second long shot of her butt and her swaying hips. Screen diva Joan Crawford said Marilyn's behavior was unbecoming of an actress and a lady. And this is the kind of thing that was very hard for Joe DiMaggio to live with. 
There came a string of other successes for Marilyn, who was now listed among the top 10 money-making stars in Hollywood, and Fox Studios called her their greatest asset apart from CinemaScope, the new widescreen process that was taking movie screens by storm. Gentlemen prefer blondes, How to Marry a Millionaire, River of No Return, and in the middle of these movie blockbusters, Playboy publishes her nude calendar shots. What a turnaround. First she gets public sympathy for being forced to pose nude before she was famous. Now she can do no wrong by being nude when she is famous. By now, the single word Marilyn said all anybody needed to say. I knew I belonged to the public and to the world. Not because I was talented or even beautiful, but because I had never belonged to anyone or anything else. Finally, it was the seven-year itch that did Joe DiMaggio in. This was the Billy Wilder comedy that contained one of the most iconic shots in movie history, in which the air from a subway grate blows Marilyn's skirt up around her legs. Director Wilder knew the shot would cause a sensation, so he staged the scene in public for fans to come and watch. The filming drew crowds by the hundreds, and it became the image most associated with Marilyn Monroe. It put the final nail into the coffin of the Monroe-DiMaggio marriage. Just the same, the two remained friends forever, until Marilyn's death. And some said Joe was even thinking of proposing marriage to her again shortly before she died. He took care of all the funeral arrangements, made sure it was a low-key, private ceremony, and had flowers sent to her grave for 20 years after she passed away. Marilyn's persona may have been too much for Joe DiMaggio, but it was clear that he respected her talent and her drive to stay on top. And she was becoming fierce in her negotiating, knowing the power her image had. After a feud with 20th Century Fox caused her contract to end, she came back strong and renegotiated it, getting $100,000 to appear in the seven-year itch. This was followed by Marilyn starting her own production company and again battling Fox Studios to get out of the very contract she had just renegotiated. In the end, knowing she could not make movies without the studio's money and that the studios needed her for her box office potential, Fox and Marilyn came to an agreement to work together in 1955. Time called her a shrewd businesswoman, and Look Magazine declared she would stand as an example of the individual against the herd for years to come. During the time it took those negotiations to resolve, Marilyn again devoted herself to her craft, taking classes at New York's legendary Actors Studio. To escape public attention, she took private lessons with Lee Strasberg and his wife Paula at their home. This was the start of a close friendship between the Strasbergs and Marilyn that would last until her untimely death. Another protege of Strasbergs was Marlon Brando, which led to a brief romance between Brando and Monroe. But the next significant romance that would blossom into marriage was just around the corner, when Marilyn was introduced to playwright Arthur Miller. Known for his iconic drama about the dark side of the American dream, Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller was arguably to American theater what Joe DiMaggio was to American baseball. Say what you like about Marilyn, she was drawn to the best. And they to her. Now, there were lots of reasons why 20th Century Fox did not want Marilyn to be hanging around with Arthur Miller. Chief among them being that this was during the McCarthy era, when people in show business were being investigated for being communists, and Arthur Miller was on the top of that list of suspects. Then, when Marilyn converted to Judaism for the marriage, Egypt banned all her films. And the studio felt the whole thing was mismatched, with Marilyn thought of as the classic dumb blonde and Miller thought of as the classic intellectual. When Variety covered the wedding, their headline was, Egghead weds hourglass. You can't win with the media, can you? In an interview late in her career, Marilyn said, 
Sometimes I feel my whole life has been one big rejection. She was also quoted as saying, Arthur Miller wouldn't have married me if I had been nothing but a dumb blonde. And Arthur Miller had this to say about Marilyn. She was a whirling light to me then. All paradox and enticing mystery. Street tough one moment, then lifted by a lyrical and poetic sensitivity. She was at this point incapable of condemning or even of judging people who had damaged her. What she wanted most was not to judge, but to win recognition from a cruel profession and from men blinded to her humanity by her perfect beauty. There are many theories about why the couple eventually split, but it is well known that Marilyn had two devastating miscarriages during their marriage and that her depression and drug use was increasing. She was also reportedly pretty unhappy with the role Arthur Miller wrote for her in her final film, The Misfits, which she felt reflected their growing distance from one another and put her character in a bad light. Plus, after they divorced, Miller immediately remarried and had a child, which must have crushed Marilyn after her endometriosis, which she suffered with her entire life, caused so many of her problems. But there were many ways in which Marilyn had become her own worst enemy. This is sadly true. Not only was she becoming addicted to barbiturates, but long before drugs were becoming an issue for her, she had for some time been chronically late to her movie sets, and this was becoming a real problem for the studio. I am invariably late for appointments, sometimes as much as two hours. I've tried to change my ways, but the things that make me late are too strong and too pleasing. Drugs, sex, probably both of these were the strong and pleasing things making Marilyn late. But at the height of her career, she was probably just too big a star for it to matter. Bus Stop got her a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress. The famous New York Times film critic Bosley Crowther declared, Hold on to your chairs, everybody, and get set for a rattling surprise. Marilyn Monroe has finally proved herself an actress. She then starred alongside Laurence Olivier in The Prince and the Showgirl. But she found Olivier sexist and condescending and used her distaste for him as an excuse to be even more late and unprepared, slowly increasing her reputation as a liability. When she teamed up again with director Billy Wilder, things were really getting out of hand. Syncopators, does that mean you play that very fast music, uh, jazz? Yeah, real hot. <laughs> oh, well, I guess some like it hot. I personally prefer classical music. Oh, I do, too. As a matter of fact, I spent three years at the Sheboygan Conservatory of Music. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to the story. Some Like It Hot was a big hit, but Marilyn's behavior on set was becoming unconscionable. Not only was she chronically late, but she would constantly forget her lines and demand dozens of retakes. Prompting her co-star, Tony Curtis, to quip that kissing her became like kissing Hitler. Nice. But in the end, nobody could argue with the film's runaway success or Marilyn's gift for comedy. She won the Golden Globe for Best Actress. Soon after, she moved back to California after six years on the East Coast and had a brief relationship with Frank Sinatra. And shortly thereafter came what would be Marilyn's final film, The Misfits, which, as we've already established, had been written by her soon-to-be ex-husband, Arthur Miller. But the real reason we're coming back to The Misfits, in which she also starred with Montgomery Clift, is that there was another screen legend sharing top billing on the film, and one with particular significance to Marilyn. That's right. In an ironic twist, an example of a life coming full circle, 
Marilyn's co-star in The Misfits was none other than the man she had long playfully claimed may have been her biological father, Mr. Clark Gable. Though The Misfits was her last film, there was one in the works just before she died. And it may simply be a coincidence, but the title of Marilyn's last uncompleted movie project was Something's Got to Give. That title was indeed a fitting description of what would be the final few months of her life. The movie was produced by Marilyn's company, and crooner Dean Martin was set to co-star. Unfortunately, Marilyn became ill with a sinus infection and could barely work on the project in its first six weeks. It may have been that her long history of flaking and forgetting her lines was catching up to her, but the studio used Marilyn's illness as ammunition to go after her, even though there was documented evidence from medical sources advising Fox to halt production. The studio even went so far as to declare to the public that Marilyn was faking it. A case of the girl who cried wolf too often, perhaps, but just the same. They were in the wrong this time. This industry should behave like a mother whose child has just run out in front of a car. But instead of clasping the child to them, they start punishing the child. Like, you don't dare get a cold. How dare you get a cold? I mean, the executives can get colds and stay home forever and phone it in. But how dare you, the actor, get a cold or virus? You know, no one feels worse than the one who's sick. I sometimes wish... Gee, I wish they had to act a comedy with a temperature and a virus infection. While her battles with the studio continued, Marilyn did one other thing the studio had advised her not to do. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Wearing a skin-tight beige dress that made her look almost naked, Marilyn showed up at New York's Madison Square Garden on May 19, 1962, to join the birthday celebration for John F. Kennedy, with whom she was rumored to be having an affair. Well, supposedly the president's brother Bobby, too. Although by most accounts, her relationships with the Kennedys could have been rumors. She was connected to the family, though, through her old boyfriend, Peter Lawford, who had gone on to marry Jack and Bobby's sister, Patricia, or Pat Kennedy. In any case, Marilyn's antics were driving the studio crazy. Finally, by June 7th, after calling in sick a few more times, Marilyn was fired by Fox and sued for three quarters of a million dollars in damages. The studio publicly blamed Monroe for having to shut down Something's Got to Give, and even started to spread negative publicity about her, including that she was mentally disturbed. Though Fox and Marilyn eventually made nice, and even contracted Marilyn to appear in another picture, their mean-spirited character assassination of her may have contained a chilling grain of truth. On August 5, 1962, Marilyn Monroe was found dead in the bedroom of her home in Brentwood. Empty bottles of the pills she used to battle her depression were scattered around the room. Marilyn Monroe kills self, read the now infamous newspaper headline in the New York Mirror. Everything pretty much points to this inevitable conclusion, but apparently there was enough mystery occurring on the night of her death to fuel a few skeptics and probable crackpots. A timeline of what happened prior to her death has been established. She died on a Sunday. On that Saturday, August 4th, she had taken some meetings, even signed for several deliveries. 
Her housekeeper Eunice Murray was there, along with Marilyn's publicist, who was sent away at 4.30 in the afternoon when Marilyn's therapist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, arrived for a session with Marilyn. After the session, Dr. Greenson asked that Eunice Murray stay the night to keep Marilyn company. At around 7 p.m., Marilyn received a call from Joe DiMaggio Jr., her ex-husband's son and Marilyn had stayed close friends since the divorce, and Joe Jr. wanted to share some news with Marilyn about his breaking up with his girlfriend. Joe Jr. later told reporters that he found nothing odd in her manner when speaking to her that evening. But Marilyn's old boyfriend, the actor Peter Lawford, who, as we mentioned earlier, was married to the Kennedys' sister Pat, called at around 8 p.m. to invite Marilyn to a party, and he told a different story. Lawford said he was worried and that Marilyn sounded like she was under the influence of drugs. The conversation ended with what amounts to Marilyn's last words. Say goodbye to Pat. Say goodbye to the president. And say goodbye to yourself, because you're a nice guy. Lawford tried to reach Marilyn again, but he couldn't get through. He called his agent, who tried to get through to Dr. Greenson, but couldn't but then got through to Marilyn's lawyer, who got through to the housekeeper. Eunice Murray assured everyone that Marilyn was okay. But Eunice Murray awakened suddenly at 3 a.m. that Sunday and had a feeling something was wrong. She saw the light on in Marilyn's room, but the door was locked. She peeked through the window from outside and saw Marilyn. She was lying face down on her bed, covered in a sheet, and clutching the phone receiver. She called Dr. Greenson immediately, and he broke a window to enter Marilyn's room where he discovered she was dead. It is difficult to say how conspiracy theories get started, but there are a lot of them swirling around about the death of Marilyn Monroe. Interestingly, these conspiracy theories did not gain prominence in the time immediately after her death, but have blossomed in the ensuing years. The most prominent and enduring theory is that Marilyn's ongoing affair with Robert Kennedy was causing great problems for the then Attorney General, and that when she threatened to expose him, he arranged her murder. This theory was initially floated in 1964 by a guy named Frank A. Capel, who, together with Los Angeles Police Sergeant Jack Clemens, was the first officer at the scene of Marilyn's death. But Capel and Clemens' claims have been widely critiqued, and it has been pointed out that Clemens suddenly added new details to his testimony years after the discovery of Marilyn's body, in which he said when he came upon the scene, the housekeeper was actually washing Marilyn's sheets. Frank Capel, it was also discovered, had a virulent anti-communist agenda and published his pamphlet about the conspiracy in 1964 in hopes of furthering his cause. Over the years, though, these theories have persisted, fueled largely by the new resurgence of interest in the case through Norman Mailer's 1973 biography of Marilyn. In that book, Mailer again asserted that the affair with Robert Kennedy was the motive for the death. Only in his version, either the FBI or the CIA handled the killing of Marilyn, with an eye to increasing pressure on the Kennedy family. Norman Mailer himself recanted his statement. But still other books with more theories came out, including the notion that union leader Jimmy Hoffa had Marilyn's place wiretapped and wanted to use any secret she had about the Kennedys against the anti-crime crusading attorney general Bobby Kennedy. It was also rumored that Marilyn kept an infamous Red Diary, in which she recorded secret political information she gained from being in relationships with the Kennedys. Things reached a peak in the 1980s when the controversial biography Goddess, The Secret Lives of Marilyn Monroe was published by author Anthony Summers. 
His theory involved the missing time between when housekeeper Eunice Murray claimed Marilyn was okay and when she went to look in on her employer. It became a what-really-happened breeding ground for a conspiracy involving both Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford. In this incarnation, Kennedy and Lawford were supposedly feeding Marilyn's addiction in hopes of keeping her docile and preventing her from going public about her affair with Bobby. Then again, supposedly, when she accidentally overdosed and died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, Lawford and the Kennedys, with additional help from J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, mind you, brought the body back to the house and staged a suicide. Well, this was apparently because Robert Kennedy needed to get out of Los Angeles before the death became public, and he was linked to it. The only fact that can be pulled out of any of these wild theories is that Robert F. Kennedy was, apparently, in Los Angeles on the night before Marilyn's death. Quite a lot to spin out of one piece of logistics. Yeah. In fact, because of all these books and conspiracy theories, the Marilyn Monroe case was reopened in 1982, and the findings of the inquest were, again, that Marilyn's death was a probable suicide. The coroner's statement read, in part, as follows. Miss Monroe had suffered from psychiatric disturbance for a long time. She experienced severe fears and frequent depressions. Mood changes were abrupt and unpredictable. Among symptoms of disorganization, sleep disturbance was prominent, for which she had been taking sedative drugs for many years. She was thus familiar with and experienced in the use of sedative drugs and well aware of their dangers. In our investigation, we have learned that Miss Monroe had often expressed wishes to give up, to withdraw, and even to die. On more than one occasion in the past, she had made a suicide attempt using sedative drugs. On these occasions, she had called for help and had been rescued. It is our opinion that the same pattern was repeated on the evening of August 4th, except for the rescue. Except for the rescue. What a heartbreaking truth that was. When a person so larger than life dies, maybe sometimes it's too hard to face that they were human after all, so we have to come up with our own reasons why it happened. But also, when a person as popular as Marilyn Monroe dies, she leaves behind her work and her legacy. In fact, in Marilyn's will, she left a little money to that long-lost half-sister, Bernice, whom we talked about as we opened the show. Her mother's first daughter the one you were surprised to hear about. <laughs> That's right. Marilyn clearly valued the importance of family. She also established a trust fund to cover the cost associated with the continuing care of her mother, Gladys Baker, as well as the care of the widow of Michael Chekhov, her beloved acting teacher. She left 25% of her estate to a former psychiatrist, asking that the money be distributed to further the work of other psychiatric groups and institutions. That really reveals so much about her feelings toward what her mother must have suffered and what Marilyn suffered with herself. It really does. She left the remaining 75% of her estate to the actor studio's Lee Strasberg to be administered among her friends and colleagues and, as Marilyn put it, those to whom I am devoted. There was a lot of love inside this very complicated woman, Norma Jean Baker, whom we now will forever know as Marilyn Monroe. And it may be that Marilyn had no greater love than she did for the audiences who worshipped her. Let's give Marilyn the last word about the acting craft that meant so much to her as she negotiated the obstacle course of worldwide fame and notoriety. I've always felt toward the slightest scene, even if all I had to do in a scene was just to come in and say hi, that the people ought to get their money's worth, and that this is an obligation of mine to give them the best you can get from me.
Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Famous Fates for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Famous Fates on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Remember, it's a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find the show right here. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 